to wear all of this as an adornment. It's just a bangle on your wrist. The entire creation. Talk about attachments. <laughs> when the entire creation is a, like a bangle on your wrist, what is the concern for small attachments? certainly puts things in a different perspective. <laughs> and that's why our study of Sanskrit, we study the letters and the alphabets, but not just how to pronounce as a Sanskrit lesson or as a grammatical uh, uh, chore. We study how to wear it, how to use it, how it applies to our lives. In waking up the centers of energy, in making those little mothers stand up inside, in wearing creation as a bangle, as an adornment, as a piece of jewelry, the entire creation. All the vibrations that can come into evolution, possibilities of existence, merely an adornment. And that's how the Matrika Nyas and the Bhutashutra work together. You energize the center and then you adorn it with the vibrations of all existence. It all resi resides inside. Please, you have questions. What does Om, how does Om, Om figure in this? Om is the Bij mantra for the totality of uh, uh, creation for all of creation. For the you see, the rishis con cognized the beach mantras. They said the sound of Maya is Hrim, the sound of wisdom is Eng, the sound of creation is Om. And that was the letter that, or the the beach mantra that could most closely approximate the sound of creation. Are there other questions? Yeah. Please. When, um, when you're doing the, uh, uh, the Machigan Yes, when you get to the Muladara, how do you, how do you do it? You just indicate. You do it straight across. I do it straight across as an indication, the four letters of Muladara, just straight across. But it's difficult to draw a circle down there when you're sitting on your heel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. Is there a relationship between the vanya, the external, yes. and the ones that are placed on the chakra? Yes, there is. Along the nadis, is that when they're connected, or in some other section? Well, uh, the bahya matrika nyas places the same matrika as those little mothers they get around. Uh, it places them all along the nadis and all throughout the body and all through this system so that this body is permeated by the mothers. They come, they're everywhere. They're not just in the chakras, but they're all throughout the body. Is it from their, their residence here that the external objects are created? Uh, actually, we, uh, in the order of worship, we put on the external first, then we put on the internal. We work our way backwards. Remember, we're working with the 24 tattvas of Shankya primarily, 
we don't need to get into 36 tattvas of tantra just yet. The 24 principles start with the gross body, the five organs of action, panchendriya, the panchkarmendriya, the five organs of action, upper appendages, lower appendages, tongue, anus, reproductive organ. And then the five organs of knowledge, five senses. Uh, these 10 are called dasindriya. These 10 are the avenue for interaction between the external world and the internal world. Now what we're trying to do is to control the movement, the motions of the dasindriyas. And we do that by sitting in an asan and controlling all the movements of the body. Controlling the movements, the, the, the vrittis, the changes and modifications of all the indriyas. So we're working from the external in. Let's start with where we're at. Uh, would that we were all born with full God consciousness and couldn't understand why everyone else isn't in samadhi all the time. But that just didn't happen to be our, our process of this birth. Our process was something different. We were slapped on the behind and said, be a somebody. <laughs> and that's just what happened to us. Now we're somebody's, we're trying to become nobody's. <laughs> After a lot of practice of becoming a somebody ad nauseum, we've decided it's more fun to become nobody. <laughs> and now we're in the reverse process. So we're working from the external worship to the internal worship. And that's why we start with the book saying, I love you, and offering the flower outside. In the same way, we'll start with the Bahya Mantri In the same way, we'll put the Matritas outside of us. All through the, all through the outside, the bahya matrika nyas. It's the external worship of the mother, of the body of the mother. This is her body. Now we move to the internal worship, and then place her in the chakras. So this is the relationship between the two different kinds of nyas. Remember, nyas means to establish within. Uh, a term you're all familiar with is sannyas, someone who is established in truth. Sa means truth. A sannyasi is one who is established in truth or someone who has established truth within. Nyas, uh, karanyas, uh, we put the letters of the mantras of our deity in our fingers, just like we had the karamala the mala of the fingers. In the same way, we have a karanyas, nam angus, the biangdaba, ma, tartini, biang, maha, sing, madaba, biang, pashat, bong, anamika, biang, hum, ya, kanishikaram, pashat, om namashiva, karol, kaprishka, biang, astraya. Om namashiva, we put the letters, namashivaya, into our fingers. And everything we touch with mantra. By mantra. 
for mantra, for the deity, as a seva to the deity. This is another form of nyas to establish within. Anginyas we establish within the body, within the heart, within the head, on the crown of the head. These are all different vidis of the puja, subsections of the worship, so that we can pile a number of sections of worship together and, in, and get the expression of the divinity within in a number of different ways. And that's how the puja proceeds by taking all of these beads and putting them together one after another so that the puja comprises a guided meditation taking us out of our ego selves and putting us into the feeling and the presence of the deity and then bringing the deity inside and remembering that I am the one that I am worshiping. Brahmarpanam, Brahmahavir, there is only the supreme divinity. He is the worshiper. He is the worshipped. He is the means of worship. He is the offering to, to, by which worship is performed. Only the supreme divinity. There is only the supreme divinity. And supreme divinity is the path by which that supreme divinity is realized. And that's the understanding that we get through the processes of puja. By expanding our concept of yoga beyond the body, beyond the mind, into the realms of intuitive experience where we understand that I am the one who's being worshipped. Please. I ask a question out of ignorance. Oh, don't worry. I give the answer it out of ignorance. More religion and more Hindu religion than it does my understanding of yoga. Could you clarify that? I'm sorry. It seems there is a Hindu religious origin of the book and what you're talking about as distinguished from a yoga practice which is not necessarily religious or worshiping. I don't believe so. Um, there is a definition for Hindu which I love very much. It says who abhors violence in every form. Sada acharana tatpara, who strives for harmony in every behavior. Ved gol pratimas devi, who loves wisdom, who respects all teachers of wisdom, and practices some form of yogic meditation. Sa Hindu mukashantabak, such a one may be said to be Hindu. And that's the definition of Hindu that we strive to live up to. And that's why there is an inseparable connection between a real Hindu and a yogic practice. Because the love of wisdom and the practice and the respect of all teachers of wisdom and the, the practice of yoga are inseparably connected. 
We come to union in yoga through the love of wisdom and the study and the practice of wisdom. Could I be a devout Catholic and still be a, a believer and follower in the prayers as you Absolutely. She was a sister for many years. Uh, and we have many other nuns and Catholics who live in our ashram. There is in no way any, uh, any controversy or any dichotomy between the practice of yoga and mantra through, or the, the practice of Catholicism. The same way we worship saints and the path that the saints dis, uh, displayed and demonstrated, the same way we worship the gods and the goddesses. And if Pantangeli came to earth again, he would be very happy in your Oh, I am sure hope so. I would hope so. Yes, sir. Um, but along that, that same line, whatever you conceive God to be, you could do puja to Jesus. Oh, absolutely. Or to Buddha, or to whomever your deity's choice is. And, and we do. And we do. And we do. What I like from my point of view is I like that these are techniques and not necessarily something that you have to believe in. They're all techniques like the Buddha Shiri. When you do it, the Kundalini is moving up whether you're Catholic or Jewish or Hindu. And yoga just happens to come out of the East. But it's not particularly Hindu. It's just technique. It just happens that it, it was explained most efficiently in Sanskrit terms. That was its language of origin. And so that I got inspired to study Sanskrit, and that's how I happen to use more Sanskrit in my vocabulary. You'll know, excuse me, I'm not very proficient in English. Yes. Weren't the weren't the original rishis who propounded yoga and the path of yoga? Weren't they uh, worshippers of Shiva, worshippers of Mahana, worshippers of Vishnu? Yes, but they were also worshippers of all of life, and they worship. They said that God lives in everything, and everything is potentially divine if you have the eyes to see it in that way. And therefore, you could say, any one being is the expression of divinity to me. Whether it be a saint, or a goddess, or the ultimate divinity, or Jesus and the form, or Mary as the mother, any form you choose is the divinity. Now let's leave the religion alone and get to the practice, the practical. How do you move your awareness into that presence of the deity? How do you become one with that divinity? How do you unite? Yes, please. Do you feel that, um, I'm just thinking about how we choose a deity with Simpsons. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes I find it difficult. Like, for example, I've got a Tara at home, and I kind of think, I sort of feel like I, I try to connect with Tara um, because I've got this statue of Tara. And then um, I was thinking about the Shiva Kudra. It's almost as if, do you feel that um, a deity seeks oneself, or do we seek a deity? Do you know what I mean? Like, if I, how do you choose a deity? Is it something that you draw, in your experience, that you've been drawn to, for example, Shiva, as your gateway in? Or <coughs> yes, Shiva, or whatever form of deity, that, that divinity will come and tap you on the shoulder and say, okay, I'm coming to your house. You come to my house through me. However, we're all worshiping one God. <laughs> 
Uh, it, it thought I came to your house. <laughs> Tara came to your house Jesus came to his house and there's no reason that he shouldn't worship God through the vehicle of Jesus just as you are worshiping God through the vehicle of Tara just as today we're talking about it through the vehicle of Shiva and do you find that for example the Shiva Puja um, I mean when you know does a mantra or a puja that's um, you know, a particular deity, do you find that you take embodying some sort of sheerish quality? Sheerish? Sheerish? English is marvelous. <laughs> No, I think that any, uh, any type of mantra, if we recite for the purpose of self-purification, we will find self-purification. Now, if we recite uh, Kali mantra in order to become a strong, heroic warrior type figure, a Xena of the Amazon or wherever. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm, I'm not so prolific in modern American television. <laughs> Uh, but if we, if we are reciting for the purpose of inculcating those qualities of the deity, then better be careful. But if we're trying to become uh, pure, then in any way we seek God in that way, God is going to bless us. With any desire with which we seek to cultivate the relationship with divinity, to, in order to have that harmony, that yoga, we will find that yoga in the same way. So if you chant the mantra of Shiva with the prayer that you will become pure, or chant the mantra of Tara with the prayer that you will become purified, or chant the mantra of Jesus so that your heart will become pure, you will find purity. But if you're looking for, if I'm going to pray to Lakshmi so I get lot, I win the lottery, or, or I'm going to pray to Kali so that I can have a big sword too and uh, cut down all the people who bother me, uh, probably not. That could be, in some ways, harmful to you. What does the picture of the divinity represent? She is Chandi, and her name means to tear. She tears apart duality, and she tears apart confusion, and she destroys, uh, she causes the great ego to surrender. And she comes from a tradition, it's a beautiful story. Um, uh, very quickly, uh, a king lost his kingdom. His name was Good Thoughts. He lost the kingdom of Good Thoughts. And a businessman lost his business. His name was Samadhi, pure intuitive vision. Both of them were homeless and penniless, and they fled from their circumstances, and they took refuge in the ashram of the intellect of love. And they said, wow, this ashram is so beautiful. 
and the water is so sweet, and the fruits are so delicious, and the flowers are delightful, and there's so much love and peace here. Why are we thinking about the kingdom that left me? And why am I thinking about my business? And they went to the Rishi and they said, you know, your ashram is so beautiful. And my kingdom was always so perplexing to me. I had so many responsibilities and so many duties. But why is it now that I'm free from all those responsibilities, I can't sit still? Rishi, Mumi, please tell me how to make the mind sit still. And that's the story of the emanation of this goddess. The narration of how she came a time and time again. She comes when devotees call upon her. She puts too much and too little in balance. She takes away the armies of the great ego. Uh, it, uh, there are 17 generals in the army of the great <laughs> ego. <laughs> Devoid of clear understanding. Want of resolution. Wandering to and fro. The great frustration, memories, <laughs> haughtiness. And we come to the goddess and we say, hey, we would like to sit still. Please just let us be quiet for a moment. And two little comes and says, you don't have enough. Get up. You can't sit there. You've got to get some more. Get an education, get a job, get some money, pay the grocer, get more. And so we go out as dutiful children, we go out into the world and we bring home all the loot. We get all the stuff that we're supposed to get and we say, well, you'd like to sit still. And too much comes and says, you can't sit there. You've got it too much. Take out the trash. <laughs> Clean out your closet. <laughs> Go you look at your garage. <laughs> this goddess comes along and we pray to her and she gives us the understanding of what's the right amount. So she puts too much and too little into balance so that we get to sit. And her picture here is an external reminder of that. Yes, yes. It is an external reminder of the goddess inside us who can, who can put our too much and too little into balance if we pray sincerely. And then there are another, a number of battles, uh, other battles that are fought in the story because when we finally get to sit down and we say we want to meditate, we go to the movies. <laughs> I'm sure all of us know what the movies are like. <laughs> we get to watch the drama of the greatest heroine. <laughs> and we call it meditation. <laughs> and there are two critics of every movie. Uh, one is named self-conceit. The other's name is self-deprecation. And self-deprecation says, oh no, if only I hadn't. If I only didn't do it that way, boy, did I blow it. I'll never get it right. I, I can't do it. And self-conceit is all haughty and puffed up with pride. And says, boy, did you do a good job that time. <laughs> And they watch all the movies, and every time we roll the movie clip, 
We listen to the award ceremony. <laughs> and the critics go on chattering. All the voices. Until the goddess comes and says, shut up. <laughs> and then there's a third story about the great ego coming with all his warriors saying, you can't sit still. If you sit still, that means the end of me. And where will you be without an ego? You need to be a somebody. You have to be important. And so he sends all his warriors and all his armies, fully armed and operational, to attack the meditator and give more movies, memories, <laughs> and frustration, and haughtiness, foul mouth, irresistible temptation, blindness, arrogance, wandering to and fro, devoid of clear understanding, all of them meet their demise at the hands of the goddess. And finally, the ego surrenders. And that's the story of the goddess Chandi. Well, when good thoughts and samadhi heard about the, the strength and prowess and, and the beauty, the majesty of inviting the goddess into their lives, they decided that they too would perform sadhana. And they would put their lives into the balance of yoga. And they began to perform exercises, yogic exercises, postures in order to be able to sit, in order to be able to breathe, and in order to chant and recite the tales of the goddess. And when they did that, they began to propitiate the goddess through the prescribed procedure, and the goddess came to them and said, I'm very pleased, and I'm giving you back your kingdom, and you'll be the king of good thoughts eternally and never will a bad thought enter your kingdom. And then she said to Samadhi, what do you want? And he said, I just want you. <laughs> and she said, you'll remain in Samadhi. And that's the story. <laughs> so we carry her around wherever go, just to remind us uh, what we're doing here. Uh, is the Lalita Sahasranam, is that for Chani? Uh, it, it, there, there's only one goddess. There's only one god. And the god and the goddess are the same. Now, just as one woman is the mother to her child and the child to her mother, She's the sister to her sister and the friend to her friend. And she's a nurse and a cook and a psychiatrist and a chauffeur and many, many other occupations. That one woman, when she goes to a fancy affair, she wears a fancy dress. And when she goes to a swimming party, she wears a swimming suit. And when she plays tennis, she wears a tennis outfit. When she performs each function in her life, she has a different dress 
a different appearance, a different demeanor, a different comportment. She is one woman, but she's called friend, sister, mother, lover, wife, nurse, mom. She's one woman. And in the same way, there's one God. And we call her him. <laughs> and we call him her. <laughs> and we call her Chandi, tear apart the duality. And we call her Lakshmi, please help me define my goals. We call her Saraswati, endow me with knowledge. We call her Kali, take away the darkness. We call her Ganesh, remove the obstacles. We call him Shiva the consciousness of infinite goodness. We call him Jesus, the manifestation of love. We call the one God by so many names indicating our relationship with God from where we sit at that particular point in time. We know that God is infinite and beyond conception. So it's very, very difficult to talk about yoga without talking about God. Because when we unite, we want to unite with the highest and the best. Can you think of something greater than God? Something that's more worthy of our seeking union with? I would think, as far as my capacity goes, that's the highest. Now, we can't unite with the formless, the infinite beyond conception. We can only unite with a form to surrender that concept of duality and then merge into the formless and intuitively recognize the formless. So the meditation with form is the path to the realization of the formless. Yes, please. Um, in your opinion, what's the difference between Buddhist practice and, and Hinduism? Very, very little difference. But if you, especially if you talk about practice, uh, you, it, there are various forms of Buddhism. And excuse me, I'm not an authority on Buddhism. But I know that there are various forms of Buddhism as there are various forms of Hinduism. And many of them uh, uh, take the path of meditating on the form in order to understand the formless. And in that sense, they're the same. Do That's a very good way to get cluttered. <laughs> well, thinking, wishing to be. No, not wishing to be, but when, when I've kind of looked at maybe my practices, that's what I mean. Sometimes I come back to just stripping it away and just being with the moment. Yeah. 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 Well, I would think uh, that's certainly a major objective of what we're trying to accomplish. 
to cultivate a true relationship with that divinity so that we can merge through the form into the formless. That will certainly take us into the moment. In fact, there is no other moment. In that communion, there is only the now. Oh, please. I, I studied uh, the Apostle meditation for one and a half, 15 years, and what would happen when I meditate is you know, basically you're watching your breath and trying to be in the moment, and there was always thoughts. I was always thinking about what I was going to do later in the day, and you know, crowded by a whole number of things. And then I met Mayan Swami, and I started doing these pujas, which it's something, it's just like a guided meditation. You just read through the process, you go through the process, you read the Sanskrit, you read the English. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of feeling and emotion, you know, offer flowers, you offer light. There's a lot to do. And then all of a sudden at the end of it, maybe after 15 or 20 minutes, I found that I was in a state of meditation. There, wasn't, there was no effort involved. So I mean, if, if you feel drawn towards that kind of a process, it's really great. It's really it's a lot of fun. Are there other questions? Well, uh, uh, Mahavir, uh, why don't you Should give us... Mahavir just uh, wrote a, a new book about uh, uh, stuff, and he'll, he'll tell you about his book. So. Isn't he great? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he speaks with the same passion. He's talking to one person, or he's talking to four hundred people. Um, but you know, the book is very similar to what we're doing right now, this process of kind of give and take and really asking questions, and you guys have been asking really good questions. And because I've known Swami for about four years, uh, I really wanted to create a book that would kind of explain, uh, let give him, him and spend Ma a chance to really explain their philosophy. So we sat together, just as disciples and gurus have sat together for thousands of years, really, and you know, I asked him questions and kept probing like we are today, and he re revealed so much, and it's so fantastic. Uh, but actually, the, fav the favorite part of the book that I want to tell you about is when Trima and Swami both shared their own personal stories, which, as I said, I've known Swami for four years, but he would never talk about his own life. I never really knew hardly anything about him personally, but I knew it was really important for the book for him to talk about himself. So he revealed this story, and I'd like to share a little bit of it with you, which is, and it's really important, I think, for us as Westerners, because when you see an Indian saint, it seems a little remote and almost you know, impossible for us, but when you see one of, one of us, one of our Westerners, really getting to the top of the mountain and coming back and talking about it, it's, it's very inspirational for me and I think a lot of other people. So, um, Swami was a graduate of law school when he was in his early 20s. You can imagine him without a beard, probably, and just as cute as he is today. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he decided to travel around the world before uh, he settled into corporate life. So he was traveling in various places. He got to India, and this was so amazing for him, because the people were so, how many people have been to India here? So, some of you know. The people were so open and so loving and so real and sincere and so devotional. He said, wow, this is the place for me. And while we might visit a place and say, well, this is nice. I should come back here later. Swami's the kind of guy that really goes for it. So he said, I'm going to the Hamadis. 
And he went off to the Mali, spawned a guru, studied with him for many years, and became a Swami. And um, then he started to travel around, and this is the, the truly amazing part for me, is traveling around India without any money, and with, he had like a toothbrush and a couple of scriptures and a blanket that he threw over his shoulders, and he said, that's all I need. And in the book, you know, I asked him about this. I said, well, did he miss the comforts of home? You know, wasn't it difficult? Because sometimes he didn't know where he was, where he was going to sleep. And he said, well, you know, it always, first of all, he completely trusted in God. And he knew wherever he was going to go, God was going to take care of him. And if he didn't have a place to sleep, and he had to sleep under a tree, and it was raining, he said it was great because the trees were singing to me, and the sky and the stars were singing to me. You know, he's just completely experiencing God. So, um... Sid, I, I, I want your help in this next part. Could you come up here? <laughs> <laughs> this is unrehearsed by yeah. the way. <laughs> my two doctors. It's <laughs> my good friend Sid Nunn. One shrinks me down to size and the other one cracks me. <laughs> Sid Nunn, we call him Sid. What, what are we doing? I'll tell you, <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you when your part comes. Okay, good. Right. So you remember I was talking about we were traveling in India. Yeah. And we visited one of the caves that Swami was. Stay, yeah. right, okay. And it's a beautiful day and it's sunny and, you know, Sidnan was carried away with the romance of being a sadhu. And he said, you know, we could probably live here. You know, we can spend a couple of years. There's a street going yeah. down in front of the creek. And there are a bunch of, several caves that, would, that were created out of this you know, big wall of rock. Right. So he said, oh, we can handle this. And I said, yeah, as soon as it gets dark, we're going to be sitting back to back with our flashlights. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be out of there in a day. <laughs> so, I've been waiting to do that. <laughs> so, um, Swami met Shrima under very unusual circumstances, which are also described in the book. And it's so incredible. Swami came back to this country, and he translated all these scriptures, which we would not have the opportunity to experience if it wasn't for him. And I really recommend that if you're feeling anything today with, or last night with what's happening, you check out the pujas. Because I met Man Swami, and I was extremely impressed with both of them. But what really got me is I took home the beginning of Durga Puja and I started to practice it. And there's a real magic. I mean, everybody here who is connected with them knows that. So if, if you feel inspired, I highly recommend that you just try to practice and see what it does for you. So Swami talks about enlightenment. And again, I ask him probing questions. Like, for instance, one of my first questions was, why all this Indian stuff? I mean, why don't we do like a Western thing? And he explained, why, fix, why create a new wheel when this one works? I mean, thousands of people, millions of people, have been practicing this stuff for, mil for thousands of years successfully. I mean, a lot of people have gotten to the highest states through these practices. They've just been proven, you know, so that was his answer to that question. And I asked him about gods and goddesses, and, you know, why would I want to be enlightened? If I'm not going to be around anymore, is that, is that going to be any fun, you know? Because he talked up, he would talk in this story about how he would go into Samadhi and then he would be at the you know fireplace and then he would be you know, gone and then he'd 
find himself in somebody's home the next morning. Because they carried him home. And he didn't even know. So I said, well, why would that be fine? <laughs> why am I going to do a lot of meditation for that? And he explained that. Because the fear is that I'm going to not be here anymore. And he explained that it's not like that. It's that you are everything. So that feels good. And it's, it's great. <laughs> so that was a lot more appealing. So those are the kind of questions I asked. And then the Shrima part. Um, it's, Shrima is so unassuming that she hadn't even read the biography that Swami had written about her. So it was really total grace that she allowed herself to be interviewed. And I sat with her and she told about her childhood and her different kind of stages where she realized who she was. And Oscar um, asked her a lot of other questions like, she explains what the blessing is, like I think you were all there last night, and what happens with the blessing. And I think the most important teaching that she, she not the most important, but one of the many teachings she gives in that that really meant a lot for me is that God will take 10 steps towards you if you take one step toward God. And Trima's total example of that. I mean, everybody who knows who knows that if you take one step towards her, she'll take 10 steps towards you. So, I think I'll end up with that. Well, does any, anyone have anything else they'd like to share? Uh, Pavadeva, would you like to sing a song? Oh! <laughs> sure. <laughs> We've got a little time. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know how to play anything. Before you do that. Oh, sure. Do you think that the practice, the physical practice of yoga, the exercises, in order to make the mind sit still, we must make the mind sit still. That's the condition precedent to having a still mind. Every movement of the body is a reflection of the movement of the mind. So in order to hold the mind still, we must hold the body still. That's why we train ourselves to sit in one posture and not move our knees. And if we can keep our body still, then we can more still, more still. The practices of yoga are really important to make the body sit still so that the mind can sit still. The body is the asana of the mind. If I were sitting on an asana and it wouldn't sit still, <laughs> then it would be difficult for me to sit on that asana. <laughs> I'd be jumping all around trying to get to where the asana would sit still. In the same way, I have to keep the body still. However, the practice of yoga is not limited to making the body sit still. That's the beginning. Then comes the breath, then comes the mind, and then we go beyond the mind. Yes, please. Does, does one get to a point where the physical health, I mean, obviously, for a saint or a realized person, then the physical health isn't 
as important to somebody like me who's trying to get as much out time out of life as I can to become a realized person. So do you get to a point to where eventually there's some kind of integrative practice to just sitting and meditating and doing puja and chanting and chanting that will, I mean, that takes care of the health aspect of what the, like a asana series would do? Ultimately, as we move into higher states of awareness, we'll realize that this body has been a very efficient vehicle to uh, bring your soul to a greater realm of understanding. And then the body has served its function in trading and trading. Just like you do with your car, just like you do with your bicycle, it, just like you do with the clothes that cover the body. Ultimately, it won't be so important to maintain the, the condition of this body, just trading and getting our body. You like to sing a song? Sure. Come. <laughs> Thank you. 
from the tradition called Mishra, which is a mixture of Vedic and Puranic mantras. There are some pujas that are purely Vedic, which date uh, before 3000 BC, and some traditions which are Puranic, which date from 3000 BC to about 900 uh, BC. And this is Mishra, which is a combination of the two. 